Hello, and welcome to the In Awe and Wonder podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Hamilton. Well, I'm recording this episode out on my front porch. It's a gorgeous summer afternoon. And so you might hear birds chirping in the background. I see bumblebees buzzing around the flowers. And a couple minutes ago, I just saw a monarch butterfly come flitting by and gathering a drink, I guess, from some of the flowers. So that was really cool. But I thought just for a change, I would sit out on my porch and get this episode recorded. Today, we are looking at Psalm 94. And starting with the last Psalm, 93, going through Psalm 100, we will see at least an underlying theme of how God is king. My Bible titles Psalm 94, The Lord Will Not Forsake His People. So to me, right away, that reflects the power and might of God to suggest that he is king. Kings were powerful and mighty and able to make changes and to pardon people and to throw people in prison or, you know, punish people. Our God has the same powers as we've seen earthly kings have, although he's even more powerful and mighty than them, obviously. Showing that he will not forsake his people also shows his faithfulness and his steadfast love his love to those of us who he is in a covenant relationship with. So I'll start by reading the whole Psalm 94, and then we will break it down and discuss. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and murder the fatherless. And they say the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Okay, so this psalm talks a lot about the wicked, 
evildoers and fools, obviously the enemies of God's people. These enemies are oppressing God's people and treating them unjustly. So basically, this psalm lays out five perspectives for dealing with oppression and injustice. The first thing that we see is that vengeance belongs to God. We see that in verses 1 through 7. There are three cross-reference verses to that that I would like to share. The first one is Deuteronomy 32:35, which says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. The next one is Romans 12, 19, which says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then we have Hebrews 10.30. That says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. All right, so the next point in dealing with oppression and injustice is shown in verses 8 through 11. And that is that God knows what is happening. He even knows people's thoughts and intentions. So basically, he is omnipotent and omnipresent. He formed us and he knows us. God is not a hands-off God that just created us and then put the world in motion and is just letting it, you know, roll on its own, taking its own course. Contrary, he is very much involved in humanity and what is going on in the world. He knows everyone's thoughts and intentions. He knows everybody's hearts. So nothing surprises him. He is sovereign over all, so he is in control, and he is upholding everything. We may not understand it all the time, or even very much of the time, but we have faith in that. His will will be done, and he has us as his people, our best interest in his will. So he is aware of the oppression and injustice that is happening in the world. And he will be the one who is the judge and will deal out the punishment and take vengeance. We are not to take revenge and place that in our own hands. We are to love and bless and pray for our enemies and live at peace as far as it depends on us uh, with everyone else. So we can rest in knowing that God knows and that he will do something about it. The third point is found in verses 12 through 15, and that is that true happiness or contentment or fulfillment is available even while experiencing injustice and oppression. In other words, just having that inner peace, knowing and that assurance that the Lord is with us and is faithful. He is faithful to fulfill his promises to us. He is in a covenant relationship with us as we've talked about before, shown by his steadfast love for us. Then we have the fourth point found in verses 16 to 19. God can be looked to for protection and help during times of injustice and oppression. So we are to turn our thoughts and attitudes and our heartache and struggles over to him meaning that we can talk to him about that and how we're feeling. We can ask him to help and protect us and that we just generally are always relying on him. And then the fifth point is found in verses 20 to 23, 
which shows that people reap what they sow. The laws of sowing and reaping obviously is an agricultural analogy that, you know, if you plant an apple seed, an apple tree is going to come up out of that. So if, you know, a wicked person is plotting evil schemes and doing nasty things that they will eventually come to destruction, whether it's in this life on earth or not, it could be when they die and they go to hell, then they will be experiencing the punishment and consequences for their actions and thoughts. And then conversely, if somebody is, you know, righteous and, you know, one of God's children trying to live by God's precepts and having that reliance on God, that we will experience eternity in heaven with God. And I mean, sometimes God does bless us with material things or whatever it might be, even intangible things that are blessings here on earth. But if not, then we get to look forward to enjoying heaven either way. So cross-reference for the sowing and reaping is found in Proverbs 1.18. It says, But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. And my study Bible has a note on that that says, One reaps what one sows. These individuals lie in wait and plan to ambush others, not knowing that they lie in wait for their own blood and set an ambush for their own lives. So God's character traits that we see in this psalm include that he is just, he is judge, he is holy, omnipotent, omnipresent, compassionate, and that is shown by also disciplining his children, as it notes in um In verse 12, it said, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. So I just noted that compassion is one of the traits of discipline, whether it is disciplining because someone is out of line or sinning, causing them to realize their sin and repent of it, or whether it is simply teaching, because discipline actually doesn't always just mean correction for a wrong. It can also just mean teaching and showing someone the way. So just like a parent would do with their children, sometimes they discipline because correction is needed, but sometimes they are disciplining by example or by verbally teaching them whatever it might be, specifically the ways of the Lord. So obviously you need to have love and compassion for the person that you're disciplining in either sense of the word. So God has that same love and compassion for us as his children. Okay, so continuing on with his character traits here, his steadfast love, he is protector, helper, rescuer, He is faithful, he is trustworthy, he's powerful and mighty, and ultimately he is king. Okay, so two other things then to discuss that come out of my Reformation Study Bible that is put out by Ligonier Ministries and I think reflects a lot of R.C. Sproul and his notes in this Bible. And they were very helpful to me in understanding things. And so I thought I would pass them on in this episode. So 
The first thing to talk about is that the nature of this psalm does talk about, you know, the destruction of the wicked. And there are several psalms like that. They are called imprecatory psalms. Many people don't know what to do with them or have a hard time reconciling what is being said and, you know, that God has vengeance and wrath and that he's going to punish the wicked and things like that. God is love, yes, but he's not just all love as in the world's definition of love, like just like lovey-dovey accepting everybody. He is also holy and just, which means he does need to punish the wicked. And then out of his grace and mercy, he grants us who are his children eternal life. So about the imprecatory Psalms, the study Bible says, some Psalms called imprecatory Psalms cry out, not only for the righteous to be vindicated, but also for God to punish the wicked. Such prayers reflect the calling of Israel to holy war as God's instruments of judgment. With the coming of Christ to bear God's judgment, the warfare of God's people continues, now primarily directed against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In their warfare, Christians are commanded to bless their personal enemies, overcoming evil with good. Theologians are divided over whether there might be circumstances under which Christians may pray the imprecatory psalms against the church's enemies in the New Covenant era. If there is a place for such prayers, two things must be kept in mind. First, as under the Old Covenant, the imprecatory psalms are not for use against just any enemy who causes problems for God's people. Rather, they are for the enemies who are flagrantly and impenitently evil in their actions against Christ's church. Second, in praying imprecatory psalms, space must always be allowed for the Lord to answer them by redeeming our enemies through judgment, just as he has done for us. Christ bore the imprecations that were rightly directed at us as the enemies of God, and so we pass through judgment in him unto eternal life. God may do the same for our enemies, uniting them to Christ so that he bears the imprecations in their place, granting them the gift of eternal life. So I thought that was just valuable to point out that we should not be going around uh, praying imprecatory prayers against our own personal enemies. That wasn't the purpose of them. It is towards enemies of the church. And also, our hearts should be that God redeems even our enemies and brings them to repentance and to saving faith. So we should be praying for our enemies and the church's enemies in that way, not just going around trying to ask God to destroy them. That's not the true heart of what a child of God should be wanting, and we should want that all people would be coming to the saving knowledge and grace of God. And it should also be a comfort to know that the God of the universe is caring for you and protecting you, that Jesus bore the punishment and wrath for your sins and paid the price for you so that you could go into a relationship with God and eternity with him in heaven where there will be no more sin and suffering and no more enemies. So we can look forward to that. And the other thing in my study Bible that I wanted to read is about God's holiness. 
There is a couple paragraphs about that here on the holiness of God. Okay, it says, Two virtues assigned to God, greatness and goodness, which may be captured by one biblical word, holy. When we speak of God's holiness, we are accustomed to associating it almost exclusively with the purity and righteousness of God. Surely the idea of holiness contains these virtues, but they are not the primary meaning of holiness. The biblical word holy has two distinct meanings. The primary meaning is apartness or otherness. When we say that God is holy, we call attention to the profound difference between him and all creatures. It refers to God's transcendent majesty, his august superiority, by virtue of which he is worthy of our honor, reverence, adoration, and worship. He is other or different from us in his glory. When the Bible speaks of holy objects or holy people or holy time, it refers to things that have been set apart, consecrated, or made different by the touch of God upon them. The ground where Moses stood near the burning bush was holy ground because God was present there in a special way. It was the nearness of the divine that made the ordinary suddenly extraordinary and the common uncommon. The secondary meaning of holy refers to God's pure and righteous actions. God does what is right. He never does what is wrong. God always acts in a righteous manner because his nature is holy. Thus, we can distinguish between the internal righteousness of God, his holy nature, and the external righteousness of God, his actions. Because God is holy, he is both great and good. There is no evil mixed in with his goodness. When we are called to be holy, it does not mean that we share in God's divine majesty, but that we are to be different from our normal fallen sinfulness. We are called to mirror and reflect the moral character and activity of God. We are to imitate his goodness. Okay, so I hope that you found that helpful. God is apart and other than us in that he is without sin. And we, being part of fallen humanity, are innately sinful. We can't parse that out of ourselves. The Bible says that even our good actions and thoughts are but filthy rags because they are stained in some way with sin. It's really difficult to try to imagine what heaven will be like without any sin. You know, just try to imagine your own self without any sin. It's really, you can't hardly do it because we don't know what that is. We don't know what that's like. I often wonder, like, how different I will be. You know, how different will our personalities be without sin? I guess we'll find out. (laughs) But yeah, we can't escape the sin here on earth. We will never come to perfection here. But we wait for there to see what that's going to be like. Something that we can't even imagine. And so we are called, though, to be holy. And so, obviously, we can't be completely holy like God without sin. But as this article explains, that we are at least to imitate God's goodness. And we are to live by his laws and precepts. And it isn't because we are trying to earn our salvation or good graces with God, or even um, like doing some sort of penance, or trying to gather up more treasures for ourselves in heaven, even though that is a thing, but it's not done by trying to follow all of God's laws just because they have some meritorious effect. 
but rather it is a reflection of the Holy Spirit within us, sanctifying us and causing us to repent for our sins and then to live better and a holy, I'll say holy-like life as we mature in our faith and grow closer to God. And we want to know who God is and to love him and please him in whatever ways that we can. Even if they're small, even if they are tainted with sin, it is what we do out of our love and affections and gratitude for him and what he has done for us. So that will do it for this episode. I hope you found this discussion encouraging and helpful. This podcast is part of the Christian Podcast Community, where there are lots of programs. I'm sure you could find other podcasts that you would enjoy. So go check them out. They're at podcasts.strivingforeternity.org. My blog is at www.kristen-hamilton.com. I was on there doing some work on the blog this week. I posted several articles that I had written in 2016 on another contributor blog called Satisfaction Through Christ. I brought those posts, uh, not in their entirety, but partially over to my blog. And then you'd have to click on the link at the bottom of the post to be taken to the Satisfaction Through Christ blog to finish reading those articles. So you might be interested in checking those out. Keep reading your Bibles. 